What's up, everyone? You're listening to the Anthro Alert podcast, which is the recording of our live show, Anthro Alert. You can now listen at your leisure and at your convenience. If you're new here on Anthro Alert, this is where Renee and I, your hosts, and sometimes a guest, analyze, break down, and discuss different topics each week anthropologically. Enjoy. Hey, Bulls. You're listening to Bulls Radio, WUSF. 89.7 HD3 Tampa. 1620 a.m. on campus and streaming worldwide at bullsradio.org. It is 3 p.m. on a Friday. You know what time it is. You're listening listening to Anthro Alert, where for the next 40 to 60 minutes we talk about anthropology and try to make sense of the world around us. That's a pretty good description of what we're trying to do here. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. My name is Renee. And I am Spencer. And this is, like I said, Anthro Alert, the show where we talk from the anthropological perspective about the world around us. Current events. This is also a very important day because it, today is graduation day for a lot of people. Yes, today is graduation day. It's a great day in Tampa. People are commencing. Taking pictures in front of bulls outside. Yes. Um, just be sure not to get actually in the fountain or on the bull as that I believe that is a safety hazard. That does seem like it is uh, pretty p- prone to uh, slipping and falling. Uh, so, Spencer, as you said, it, it's, a, it's a great day for the show today. Hmm. We're going to be talking about what people do after they graduate. Most people like to work after they graduate. And so today we will be talking about work and the value of work and the changing or transitioning of the workplace in the U.S. Um, over the past couple of decades and also be talking about automation and and what kind of impacts on on jobs that will have and the concerns that people may have about that. So let's let's get into it. We have a few good uh, news articles that we've picked out today to, to discuss. Yes, let let us discuss. So so first, there is there has been talk hmm. uh, in recent times yes. of the role of energy production in the United States. So where do we get where do we get our energy from? Who produces it? Wh- how there's a there's a lot of, of stuff mm-hmm. regarding this. So mm-hmm. it kind of tails off of our discussions last week with Dr. Wells about like uh, environmental regulations and things because that has a lot to do with where we're trying to get our energy these days. Yeah, that's so important and and not only that, I mean kudos to introducing some show continuity. <laughs> We try to we try to have some sort of uh, coherent thought here and there. Right for like the three people that listened to us last week, and yeah. for, the, for the two of you listening today, we like to keep you interested. All right, here we go. All right, so this first article that we're going to be talking about is is looking at why what's the emphasis what's the re-emphasis on coal production mm-hmm. or, or on coal as a form of mm-hmm. energy for yeah. the U.S. And the argument in this article was that there really is no need for coal production now, nowadays in the U.S. Granted, the authors of this paper may be slightly biased. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we should definitely introduce. And we should introduce that all of these articles that we look at today will be on anthroalert.com. So if you would like to go on and read them yourself and make your own judgments, you may do that. You can if you want to. Nobody's forcing you to do anything. No. You absolutely have that choice if you would like. So, getting into this article, 
Um, this is actually a really touchy subject for a lot of people because coal mining or coal production was the mainstay economy of a lot of towns in the U.S. back, I guess, I don't know how much recently, but at least a few decades ago. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Coal and, and mining and mm-hmm. manufacturing, uh, but mining in general. So I grew up in a mining town. Oh, in uh, out in out in the great state of New Mexico, the land of enchantment. How was that? <laughs> it was enchanting. Oh well, it's <laughs> just as the name suggests. It's a beautiful place for nature mm. and copper mining, open pit copper mining, and okay, copper and coal mining. So, how did? Can you give us sort of some of your experience on how coal mining? Um, was incorporated into the economy there and sort of how, like, what was the, I'm assuming it generated a lot of jobs for your town. Oh, so specifically with copper, copper mining, okay. yes, the the county that I grew up in and the towns around that county were established exclusively to support the copper mining. So those towns would, would not have existed, uh, would n- they would never have came into existence had there not been a mine to bring people into work. Hmm. Uh, however, uh, being the ignorant person I am, hmm. I'm not actually familiar with any type of community or indigenous people who may have lived in the area prior to that mine coming in and uh, providing all these jobs and houses for people. And that's, well, you bring up an interesting point about... Um copper mining and coal mining and its potential impacts on indigenous communities around the U.S.? Oh, yes, for sure. And I don't recall that this article, um, which is talking about coal and its role in energy production in comparison to newer technologies or Mm -hmm. perhaps more environmentally friendly technologies. So we're getting on tangents here, so we (laughs) we can bring it back in. Uh, so this article is comparing coal production specifically to wind and solar production. And so it's, it is saying that utility-scale solar has dropped 10% in the last year and the cost of residential solar dropping uh, 26%. Um, in, and so 26% in uh, still coming after years of, of price decline. So they're making the case that these alternative energy sources are becoming essentially more affordable for just um, residential use is is what I'm getting from it. Right. That's that's kind of what I see, and that's what I've read in other articles. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I personally, I am biased in that I like the idea of solar energy. I think it's neat and interesting, mm-hmm. and I think there's a lot of potential for economic growth in that area. Also, uh, although I am not a homeowner – yeah. One day I hope to own a shipping container that I can call a home. <laughs> and, you know, you know I'm going to put some solar panels on the top of that thing. Well, I've I've heard actually that, you know, this building that we're in right now is generates some solar power. I have heard that too. I haven't been on the roof though. I haven't, but I – well, I haven't either. But I do know – so one of the issues with solar power is that obviously they do not charge at night, right? So you need some sort of battery or storage system – to where the energy that you collect during the day, you know, whatever isn't used is being stored, uh, in which I did learn that the building we're in right now doesn't have batteries. So um, at night you lose all that energy. Hmm. So so then I would like I would like to know, maybe I could look it up on our, uh, mm-hmm. our USF 
Marshall Student Center website somewhere mm. on what exactly the that solar power is used for. I asked that same question, and the answer that I got was, I don't know. <laughs> so uh, we'll yeah. have to look into that. Yeah, and then without knowing further, I could speculate, and this is all speculation, mm-hmm. but, it, but perhaps it's sold back to the utility company. Mm-hmm. So we should also take a quick stop in our conversation here and say that these discussions on Anther Alert are our opinion. It's just Renee and I talking about some things, hoping to educate you guys a little bit, or hoping to give you some information to where you can go further and educate yourself. So this is not necessarily representative of anthropology as a discipline. Uh, USF as a campus or as a university, student government, or Bulls Radio. Yes. Did I get Did I get everyone? Yes, I think you got everybody. Ex- exactly. Because my opinions mm-hmm. are my own. Unfortunately, nobody pays me to hear them. Exactly. And so we're going to be talking about, like we said, work and energy. We are not engineers. We're not economists. We are anthropologists that like to think about all these issues in the world. So take our opinions with a grain of salt. Right. And, and even then, uh, as a current graduate student in mm-hmm. anthropology, the, the previous anthropology credential, I, I don't know if that's a good term, hmm. but the previous anthropology credential I have is a minor in anthropology, so, oh, okay. so, so maybe I shouldn't even call myself an anthropologist just yet. Well, we're going to give it a shot anyway. Okay. <laughs> I'll get there one day. All right. So getting back into this article, we like taking a lot of tangents here. That's okay. So this, this article gave a lot of, well, it gave some numbers on you know gave us some percentages on price declines but what is that what kind of a monetary range does that put us in and so it says if a solar panel if a solar panel costs a hundred dollars without subsidies and seventy dollars with subsidies the lcoe which i'm assuming is the solar panel that they're using i think it's the levelized cost i forget what the acronym oe yeah, yeah. i forget the oe something like that so this proves a point that we're not economists uh, would still be $100. On the other hand, if a gas turbine costs $100 with, uh, without accounting for social costs of carbon and 130 after accounting for the social costs of carbon, then the LCOE stays at $100. And so this is, I guess, some of the argument that this article is making. Yes, in that with proper or with good foresight, mm-hmm. a a civilization and economy can plan their transitions between types of energy in such a way that workers aren't displaced mm-hmm. and that the environment is acknowledged. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, so that also, you know, this is... I think this is this is a really touchy issue for a lot of people because it brings in workers that are concerned for their jobs obviously rightly so i mean people people need jobs to support their families it also that clashes with coal not being necessarily great for the environment and so then you have that third layer of environmental regulation and it can just be a mess so what's where's the anthropology in all of this, Renee? 
Oh, well, the anthropology is there. If it involves people, there's anthropology. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, to clarify, LCOE stands for Levelized Cost of Electricity. Oh, okay. Thank you. So that, I'm assuming, has to do with maybe what, uh, like, the monthly bills that people are paying for that electricity? Yeah, I wish I could answer that. I really don't know. Well, if if you happen to know the answer, feel free to call the show. (laughs) Okay. Um... Yeah, so the anthropology for me in this, at least what I'm I'm connecting it back to Dr. Wells that was on here talking about, or actually this is what Gabby was talking about for her thesis, the, the perception, right? So people's perception of where their energy is coming from. And I think people are m- becoming to be more aware of that because I think at least myself, you know, you flip on a switch, the light turns on, you don't really think about where that comes from. Or what potential effects that may have. I, I like to think that, that uh, my roommate pays for that. <laughs> well, that that's one perception of it, yeah. And so, oh, where am I going with this? Okay, so uh, Gabby was talking about the perception of brownfields and that there were some health effects in this. And so now I'm connecting that with the perception of clean energy, you know, similarly with the environment, the health of the environment. And I don't know, I think that as more and more communities are trying to do clean energy, that maybe that perception is is being is becoming greater. Right. So our listeners may remember from last week on the topic of brownfields and revitalizing brownfields in the Tampa area mm-hmm. towards or to being health fields is is an important aspect of redeveloping possibly contaminated uh, sites. So as we think about the perceptions that people have on their energy, on energy production and where they get their energy from, and, and what it means to them individually and what it means to their community, th- these are all factors that are really important to discuss so that so that any one group of people isn't left out of the conversation. Mm-hmm. Because it's very easy to say, well, well, coal isn't going to be a reality for our future anymore, so if you're working coal now, you better figure something out. That's, mm-hmm. that, is, that doesn't respect the communities that have really dependent on coal production. Um, mm-hmm. Likewise, if, if you're listening to... If you're listening to experts or economists who are saying, we, you know, as a country, we need to make the transition to more sustainable forms of energy production, we also need to take into account, again, and any sort of bias because any position is going to have bias. There's, there's probably not a single person on the planet who, who can approach any sort of problem without having some sort of bias. And, mm-hmm. and understanding the bias of and the different perspectives that different groups and stakeholders have because it's really – and this I think is where anthropology comes in. Oh, yeah, yeah, Be- definitely. Being able to integrate all the different voices mm-hmm. from the different communities mm-hmm. uh, in a way that, that we can actually find uh, you know, a, a, a path mm-hmm. forward mm-hmm. that allows us to – you know, just be sustainable as an economy and as a yeah and, and a nation. So yeah, uh, a real strength of anthropology is to take all of these sort of contrasting perspectives 
and to make something coherent out of it. And here in, uh, here at USF, where we focus on applied anthropology, as Renee was saying, you try to take what you found in ethnography, which is basically going in to communities or meeting with stakeholders, getting all these different perspectives and opinions, making something coherent out of it. And then here in applied anthropology, we try to t- make recommendations for some path to move forward, like Renee was saying. And so we're going to take a quick break for some music, but when we come back, we are going to continue talking about work, moving away from energy production, but talking about the value of work and, um, you know, what is the meaning and significance of work when people maybe don't see that significance in their job. And we're also going to be looking at automation and how that is going to or may affect jobs in the future. So we... We'll be right back. Yeah, so while Spencer's queuing up the music, yeah, because we're going to be looking at uh, the transition of labor um, in, in the U.S. And, and what that means to to people um, as, as a college graduate and everybody else. So here we go. Here's our first song. Hey, Bulls, you're listening to Anthro Alert on Bulls Radio, WUSF 89.7 HD3 Tampa. 1620 a.m. on campus and streaming worldwide at bullsradio.org. So we are going to continue our discussion about work um, and steer the conversations toward what what is work. And, you know, work means different things to different people. As anthropologists, we know that there's a lot of different types of what we would call work. Um, you know, sometimes it's for subsistence working sometimes, you know, but we'll keep it here. Um, I guess tailored to the U S so this job or this article is talking about a growing number of people think their job is useless. Um, it's time to rethink the meaning of work, making the argument that since the 1980s, you know, um, work has been taking up more and more of our time and, you know, there's been waves of burnout and stress, um, Standard full-time employment is 40 hours a week now. And so this article is focusing on a survey done in 2013 um, by the Harvard Business Review of 12,000 professionals. So half said that they felt their job had no meaning or significance. And an equal number were unable to relate to their company's mission, while another poll among 230,000 employees in 142 countries showed that only 13% of workers actually like their job. Those are some pretty high numbers. Those those are astonishingly high numbers. Um, I, I would say, look, so from like a management and organizational management perspective, mm-hmm. I would think, well, how are those companies failing in communicating their mission and mm-hmm. engaging their employees? Mm-hmm. Um, but additionally, uh, there's a lot of individual variation that that pertains to whether or not somebody likes the type of work they do and how they are fulfilled by it. Mm-hmm. Um, as you said, work is such a a complex. There's a lot that goes into work mm-hmm. or definitions of work. Uh, this article talks about. Um, so there's one th- one statement that says only the work that generates money is allowed to count toward. GDP and GDP is, I believe, gross domestic product. You are correct. Okay, uh, what is? Do you, do you know what that means? Gross domestic product. Yeah. At one point, I did. Yeah. Uh, okay. I I think that's that's the um, 
the accumulated like money in the economy, right? Okay, like so accumulation. So that's all the money produced by the country. I think that's the money produced into like that goes back into the economy. All right. If you're an economist listening, please call us now <laughs> and correct us. 813-974-9285. Please don't be mad. <laughs> um, so, but that's that, that's really interesting thing. So, so if an increasing number of people are unfulfilled or frustrated by the work that they do because they see that perhaps it has no value, mm-hmm. then exactly where is our society, where is our community going in, tor- in terms of defining what work is, who is entitled to work, mm-hmm. and what the product of work should be. Another thing that I found interesting in this article was it said um, – hold on. Where was it? Lost my place. Basically, it was saying that – wow, okay. Um, I lost my train of thought. So what you were saying um, – All right. So so I was – I totally <laughs> lost my train of thought. <laughs> no, it, it, that's embarrassing to do on a radio show. Well, you know, that's that's me like every minute of almost every day trying to figure out what I'm thinking about. Um, okay. So we're talking about work and what it means to people. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, well, that, oh, that, that, tra- that train got done it, left, yeah. man. Yeah, 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 I got it. Okay, so you were talking about in the article, it said that you know only the work that generates money is allowed to count towards our GDP. Well, in the in the article, it also said that you know what happens when a growing proportion of the people deemed successful, you know, in this category that we call work and the GDP, so people that generally we would think of as successful by the measure of our knowledge economy, so people that are educated, presumably increasingly say their work is pointless so oh right like what's the point of like uh management yeah so now you have most of the i don't know when i this is this is really interesting to me anthropologically so most of the people that we deem successful their perception of their job is that it has no meaning or significance for at least some people, right? This variation. For, yeah, for, yeah. For, some, for people. some people. Well, this is what this article is saying. So out of this Harvard Business Review study. And so, yeah, so what? what is work then? That, that, so, okay, so then maybe we should ask, what's the anthropological definition? How would an anthropologist define work? So if we were to look at our economy and redefine what it means to work what would happen that's basically what this article is coming to oh yeah and one of the things that we'll touched on in this article and that we'll t- um we'll talk about in in some other articles is universal basic income is what these people are saying is like the most effective answer to well one thing the increasing technology automation robotization which we'll come back to but so basically what universal basic income is is every month you would get essentially a stipend for being a citizen okay. is, is, is essentially what it is. Kind of like a stipend for being a graduate student? Except a lot more. <laughs> <laughs> Except actually enough to live off of. Okay. <laughs> so they're saying that if people – this is this is logical. I, I can see this. So – if you provide people with a universal basic income, every month you give people enough money to live off of, the people that presumably think their job has no significance or is meaningless or, you know, they just 
they're not getting any grad like um, joy out of their work. They would be able to go on to not having to worry about money. They would be able to contribute to the economy or production in another way. Yeah, and and I think that that allows people that it maybe perhaps would potentially empower people to pursue things, pursue interests that may not be economically or financially prudent, but allow them to have more fulfillment. Maybe they would be nicer people. May, mm-hmm. Maybe we would have more artists in mm-hmm. the world. Not to say that we don't already have enough creative types, yeah. because have you ever thought how long it would take you to read to read every single book that is that is being published and written today? I don't think I don't even think that's possible. It's probably not possible. You probably or, you just couldn't stop reading. Or how many like how could you possibly keep up with all of the new uh, internet video content that's being produced and created mm-hmm. and uploaded like every single second? So I have I have a question for you, Renee. Putting you on the spot here. If after you graduated, you didn't have to worry about money. What would be your ideal? What would be your ideal scenario? All right. So, after I graduated, so at this point, I would be a master of the arts. Master, you would. I would be yes. a master artist and a master of the public healths. Well, let's one master at a time. <laughs> um, no, I would. I would, in fact, like to be an artist. Okay. Because. Yeah. I just yeah. think that'd be cool, man. Hey. Yeah. Yeah, uh, in, in an artist so specific for, kind of art. What kind of uh, art? I like to draw. Okay, I like to draw. It'd, it'd be cool to draw stuff. Yeah, and and yeah. for people to appreciate. Mm-hmm. Well, one like the quality has to be there, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but for people to say, "Hey, that's kind of cool. I'll, I'll give you like ten bucks for that." I'd be yeah, totally. You can have it for ten. Mm. Or to be a a performing artist that performs for people in some some way. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of value to that. I think there is, and I think that a happier population can be a more productive population in, in some sense. You know, if you're not droning on in a job that may, basically you're doing just to survive, that you don't necessarily get any joy out of, you're not trying to go that extra step necessarily. You know, whereas in, if you have a hobby or something you really enjoy or education perhaps, um, or just in a job that you work that you really enjoy, you're more inclined to go that extra step without having to worry about, can I eat tomorrow? Right. Know? So, yeah, the premise, I think, behind this universal basic income and the assumption is that people will be empowered and able to pursue higher value activities, mm-hmm. which potentially could generate more value than the work that they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, this article... Um, oh, okay. Maybe we should we should think about what's like a potential negative to a universal basic impact in, um, income. Yes, income. Well, playing devil's advocate here, I think that one argument I could see would be that if you give people a universal basic income and you give them enough to live off of, it's going to um, it's going to make people more inclined to be lazy. Perhaps would be an argument that. Since they have money, they don't have to worry about it, they won't try to do that extra step, and then they'll just live off of that universal basic income. I think potentially that that would be a real argument for some people. How would you – let's see. How would we combat that? 
So, so how would we talk about? Or what would be the what would be the the converse to that contrast? All right. So, talking about, oh, if we do universal basic income and people are already lazy, mm-hmm. how are we going to stop more people from being lazy? Mm-hmm. Well, okay. Well, maybe our perception of lazy is inaccurate. Mm-hmm. What what do we know about being lazy? Well, okay, I know plenty because I can I can take naps. <laughs> Power naps. I'm a, I'll be out in the hammock all day. I was never a napper. It, it just depends on the stigma that we or that our society has associated with the term lazy. I mean, mm-hmm. if, you, if you just – you don't have to – we don't have to say it out loud. Mm-hmm. But if you just think about um, when you hear people, groups of people being described as lazy, mm-hmm. like who who is being – who is doing the describing and who is being described? Yeah, exactly. But in in a certain sense, I think that the age of entrepreneurial ventures is already here, right? You hear about people doing startups and just have their hands in all kinds of pies. I don't think that's going to decline if you give people the security to be able to, like, live and function, right? I think that, I don't know, me personally, if I knew that I was going to be able to eat and pay my rent, I would be putting more energy into the things that I felt were going to have some sort of positive effect on society or myself or both. Right. You know, I, I don't, th- you're, you're always going to have a certain amount of self starters in a society. I don't think that's going to decline just because you're giving people enough money. Right. And if you compare that to the idea of, okay, so, um, either I, I need to work like 80 hours just to support my family mm-hmm. or, uh, maybe I don't have to work so much, but I can, you know, like rob a person or two. Yeah. I mean, you're not put in that position. Right. So that's I think that's the kind of the, the hopes that the the advocates of universal basic income are hoping mm-hmm. to achieve. Now, this article also talks about specific job sectors that um, the Harvard study review, review. feeling burnout particularly. Right. So among professionals and the specific professionals listed are. Managers, consultants, tax advisors, bankers. Mm-hmm. So um, a couple of those look like they're in the financial sector. Mm-hmm. Managers are in every aspect of organizational structure. Yeah, that's a little – that's kind of an ambiguous term, you know, because – Yeah. Cause, I mean, managers are everywhere, right? I, I think a manager – I would define a manager as an intermediary from between the uh, – mm-hmm. between various levels of uh, – organizational stratification i imagine maybe people in in some of these positions maybe feel stuck you know maybe they've hit that ceiling in their ability to like move up or and so maybe they just feel stuck in that position like they're there maybe there's limited ways to i guess get promoted or maybe go into different fields i don't know that's maybe that my perception of why burnout would be so high or maybe it's a really high stress job being a tax advisor or a banker if you're in I don't yeah, I don't know. Oh well, uh I mean yeah, for sure. Those those jobs I potentially any job could be highly stressful. Yeah, that's um, true. Like recently within the last year or so um a large bank um but that, that rhymes with um Mel's cargo oh, yeah. was was <laughs> was under scrutiny for yes, allegedly, and I don't know exactly what happened, but for yeah. al- allegedly mm-hmm. encouraging its um, bank tellers or or bank account people mm-hmm. to create 
accounts for people without their consent. Yes. For for the point of generating more income for the company. Yes. And so then it so then obviously that is a high stress environment. That would be very yeah, absolutely. Um I could see how that would generate some burnout or very very high stress. Um and but but no judgment there. I mean, who, who, who am I to judge? Thing, things happen, but I also imagine just because this article is saying since the 1980s, you know, we've only been working more. When many economists thought that as technology increased, we'd be working less, but I don't think it's uncommon for people now to be working over 40 hours a week or working, you know, doing that nine to five, say, and then coming home and having to do more work or answer emails or, you know, in the age of always having this information overload having your cell phone you know you can't always get away from work emails and so i think that also has a role in generating some of that burnout when you know nine to five you clock out it's not over necessarily all right and then also look at what are the generational perspectives Mm -hmm. of work yeah so i could tell you from personal experience if, if i talk to my my dad uh who who is an immigrant a uh Immigrant from the country of Mexico, mm-hmm. um, back in you know, back in whenever that happened. Mm-hmm. But if if I talk to him and say, "Hey, I was working until let's just say 10 p.m. Let's be generous. Sure, <laughs> let's be conservative. I was working <laughs> until 10 p.m. And then and then I'm trying to think of what my dad is trying to understand what that means mm-hmm. because for him, work meant um, very specific physical things yeah um working in a copper smelter so actually Mm -hmm. being a part of the process that turns copper from whatever you pull it out of the ground into a usable form right or or being a uh, a farm laborer Mm -hmm. uh, so a farm worker yeah which is you know picking the produce to sell Mm -hmm. or i'm working to train horses and take care of horses like those are all things that have specific actions and specific outcomes yeah whereas perhaps a lot of the work that i have done both professionally and in my time here at usf is almost abstract and and uh and theoretical Mm -hmm. yeah i i i would agree with that and i you know towards the end of our show today, we're going to talk about some of these same issues with um, higher education and, and burnout in higher education. But um, we are going to take one more break, and when we come back, we'll be talking about a larger issue that's encompassed within this topic of universal basic income, and that is wealth inequality and its presence here in the United States um, or in the world, for that matter. And so we'll be scu- uh, discussing some of the issues that go along with that after this short music break so stay tuned all right enjoy the music all right you are listening to anthro alert on bulls radio wsf 89.7 hd3 tampa 1620 a.m on campus and streaming worldwide at bullsradio.org man we, we've been having a fantastic conversation today about graduation and mm-hmm. work and what that means the hour here. really flew by today it it has gone quick. We have so many articles that we haven't even got to discuss yet. But at least we hit the most important ones. We did, yes. And, and the next one that we're going to talk about is super relevant mm-hmm. because, as graduate students, yes, we are from we are 
oh so familiar with how much uh, with a well, we're both out of state graduate students too, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we're familiar with how much graduate school costs. Yeah. Um, so the cost of higher education, mm-hmm. um, especially if you're an out of state student. Yes. And the sacrifices that have to be made in order to pursue a master's or a PhD. Mm-hmm. So if, if you're tuning in here, we were um, previously we were discussing the meaning and significance of work and the stress and burnout of work. And so we're going to bring that back into what we have more experience in. And as Renee was talking about higher education, so meaning and significance, I guess, of our degrees yeah. and um, you know, how that can change out in the workplace, but also like you were saying, the financial cost, but also the time cost, which is what this article that we've pulled up here, which is called, um, which is talking about PhD attrition and like how much is too much. So, you know, I'm not a PhD student, but I've had a lot of friends that were and are, and sometimes it seems like it can be a real just slog to the end. That might be a kind way to put it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, let's let's touch on some of these things in, in our experience. Uh, I just finished my first year, and you finished your second year Ooh, in the Masters. Two long years. Two long years. So what is what is the meaning and significance of of your degree to you and and you know how do you how do you feel about some of these the the time cost i guess we already know the financial cost but oh so so i can so from personal experience okay so before i came to usf i was i was we were talking about management earlier i was working as like a, a manager right? mm-hmm. <laughs> and so i was largely criticizing myself not not other managers out there who are doing fantastic work right. up. We need managers we do we do, uh, but I walked away from what was a successful uh, career, a, mm-hmm. a a generous salary, I would say, mm-hmm. and I walked away from that to get hopefully two master's degrees that may or may not really financially give me more than what I could have gotten previously. Right. Um, so, 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 yeah. so concluding my second year and I'm all out of funding now, Yeah. uh, it, mm-hmm. it is a tempting offer to just find a job and kind of get back into work and mm-hmm. really put the, 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 the education on, um, kind of like on the back seat or mm-hmm. the, or the back burner. Well, I don't know what the proper term would be. Back burner, yeah. Okay, on that back burner. That seems right. We're, we're cooking up careers, and we're just going to put the <laughs> <laughs> we're just going to put the education on the back. On the back. Okay. Uh, we're not going to pay too much attention to it, and really focusing more on generating income, and because you know I need to pay for rent and I need to pay for stuff yeah. like yep. like eating and like electricity. Eating is important. It is. Yeah. It is, and so so the article we were looking at is looking at PhD attrition, so how much is too much. And this article says 50% is the current trend in the, in the, for U.S. Uh, graduate schools. Mm-hmm. Oh, specifically, I think, PhDs. So, so yeah, it's, it's focusing degree. on PhDs, but there's, there's this specific interview in the article I remember reading. It's, uh, I don't remember his name, but he went, I think it was 1961, went to get his PhD um, at UC Berkeley in English, and they... Um, 
accepted 120 people, which seems crazy high, but maybe that was because it was the 60s. But only like um, only like 19 people graduated or 12 people graduated with their um, with their PhDs is what this article is saying. And like, and they were okay with that 90% dropout rate. Essentially, is you know is what it turned out to be, and so what it's fifty percent now, and that's a huge time cost to not only the students but universities and departments because you have those dropout rates, but also you don't have placement rates, which I imagine is really important to a lot of PhD students when you're applying places. You look at where prior students have been placed and how quickly they've been placed, and so this has a lot of it, this affects a lot of different people, and I guess there are, there are also issues of, you know, maybe we're pumping out too many PhDs for the positions that there are out there for. Well, I mean, potentially. I, I went to a little mini conference. Was it earlier this? I, at some point within the past couple of months, I went to a mini conference on, I, I believe, education or or English or some some discipline of, of the humanity. Something like that. That was emphasizing the role of this field in higher education and and kind of the future directions. And so it looked like the conversation, the general tone of the little conference, the one-day conference, was to, to look at how how is our field, how is, our, how is a PhD in our field relevant? And... It, there was a lot of fascinating conversations around it, specifically looking at t- these types of fields that are, for example, anthropology, that are perhaps m- more abstract mm-hmm. or, or potentially abstract, depending right. on how mm-hmm. you have that conversation, yeah. are best applied well, one in a number of different ways. But, yeah. but one of the ways that they were discussing this here at this conference was to apply these these fields and these disciplines and these perspectives as a way to approach conversations about such and such topic. Mm-hmm. So, so answering the abstract with more ambiguity. <laughs> that sounds like, yeah, that sounds like higher. Education. That sounds like that sounds well. That sounds like my personal motto of clarity through ambiguity. Yeah, that's true. But um, yeah, so to finish, to kind of. Uh, I guess go off of that. Um, recently, when I was finishing up our contemporary anthropology class, applied anthropology class, our our last class actually had some um, prior graduates of the program that are now working and have jobs and mortgages and car payments and you know all the things that we hope to have sometime. You know, <laughs> I, I don't, don't hope for any of those. <laughs> well, I guess mortgages comes with homes and car payments come with cars. Yeah, I, I eventually may, we'll need those things. Yeah, I have. I may have mentioned earlier in this. Um, this radio show about my desire to live in a shipping container. Yeah. I'm sure that there's somebody that will build you one of those or a mini home, but I digress. <laughs> anyway, they were talking about all these things about um, specifically anthropology in general and how to market yourself. But I asked one of them, I was like, um, all of them were the master's students and some were going to get their PhD, but I asked the rest of them, I was like, do you think a PhD would add more value to your career now? Um, or do you wish you would have gotten one? And, you know, largely they were all just like, no, if I'd got a PhD, it would be more for interest. I don't think it would add much value or would help me sort of climb the ladder, so to speak. Which takes us back to what we were talking earlier about a universal basic in- income exactly. where, where we can empower people to 
produce higher levels of knowledge um, with less risk. Financially, right, yeah. So you're not investing all of this time and money and then, you know, uh, don't get a a job right afterwards, which is, you know, scary for a lot of graduate students. It's sort of just how how things are. There's no guarantee. No, there's not. And I know that me personally, um, I I love the career path that I chose. And I, I don't have any regrets about coming to graduate school. I think eventually it'll pay off. But that, you know, that stress is all is always there. But uh, I think it's, you know, it wouldn't have been any different if I graduated with just my bachelor's and then tried to find work. Yeah, and, and as we're running out of time for today's show, that's probably a future conversation that we can have mm-hmm. in terms of asking. So for a student who's attending like an undergraduate program or a graduate program, whose responsibility is it? Is it the college? The, is it the department? Is it the student? Whose responsibility is it to secure employment, and then what does that look like? Mm-hmm. And I think that is a good statement to wrap up our show and our discussion of work and the value of work and meaning and significance and the economy and energy production and all of those types of things that we discussed today. Uh, I really like this discussion uh, today. These are all really interesting topics. We didn't get to some of the articles that we wanted to, so I would like to bring some of those back, specifically automation and what that will look like in the future for work and jobs like uh, factory jobs or you know coal mining or energy production whatever you know whatever may, that may be it's um could be affecting multiple industries but we're going to go ahead and wrap it up do you have any last remarks you know I, I have one thing to say so uh for the last 40 or 50 minutes you have been listening to anthro alert on yes. bulls radio wusf 89.7 hd3 tampa 1620 a.m. on campus. Oh, and streaming worldwide at bullsradio.org. However, I do need to uh, make an announcement. Um, and today's announcement is about the, the oh, the botanical gardens. Oh, so like the botanical Yeah, they're, they're nice. it's a nice place. Have you ever wanted to go to the USF Botanical Gardens but didn't know what to do there? Connect with the Botanical Gardens Club and we will show you the way. The Botanical Gardens Club volunteers at the gardens, grows vegetables each semester, and has recyclable arts and crafts projects. If you can't make it to any of those exciting events, I would be so sad. If you can't make it to any of those exciting events, come to our monthly socials, which would be super fun. Join us on BullSync and Facebook, or email USFBGC, like Botanical Gardens Club. So once again, USFBGC at gmail.com to receive updates on all of our events. And as I was saying, you just spent a the the most exciting hour of anthropology today. Oh yeah. Anthro Alert on Bulls Radio, WUSF 89.7 HD3 Tampa, 16:20 a.m. on campus and streaming worldwide at bullsradio.org. We'll see you next week. This week. This week. This week. <laughs>